3, verse 20. And we made brief reference to this verse last time, last week, about Adam naming his wife Eve. All right, so we're going to read from chapter 3, verse 20, and we'll read down to chapter 4, verse 7. And it'd be great if we have a couple people able to read Genesis 3, beginning in verse 20, reading chapter 4 down to verse 7. All right, Jeremiah, if you will start, and you can do chapter 3, 20 to the end. Uh, Amanda, you can do chapter 4, 1 down to verse uh, 5. And then Esther, you can do uh, verse 5, 6, and 7. So 1 through 4 for Amanda. All right, beginning our reading, Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 20. And Adam called his, wi- his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. For Adam, and also for his wife, the Lord God made coats of skins and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. Ever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from where he was taken. So he drove man, uh, so he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought from the fruit of the ground an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought from the firstlings of his flock and from the fat from them. And the Lord had respect for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he did not have respect. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, shall you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And his desire shall be for you, and you shall rule over him. All right, let's pray together. Oh Lord, we pray that your word would have freedom, that it would have power in our midst, and that we would have open and soft hearts. We pray that the seed of the scripture would bear fruit in our lives. And would you guide me, give me wisdom as I teach and lead this time. We praise you for your goodness, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, beginning in verse 20, um, we start to see life after the curse, because the curse has been given in these prior verses, and now Adam and Eve start adjusting to their new reality. If you want to talk about a change of existence, Adam and Eve are going through a huge change. Um, You know, sometimes if you have a marriage, you know, you have a big change of existence. If you have the death of of someone close, a family member, you have a change of existence. There was before and there was after. I think Adam and Eve always processed before and after, you know. This is a huge transformation point for them. And one thing that we, and this is kind of a side point to some degree, but one thing we notice is that there is no, there's no caveman existence, okay? There's no, like, humans as quasi-idiots, you know, there's no season of any of that, okay? When, when Adam and Eve were created, they were smart, they were intelligent, they were, you know, probably better than we are in that category. And, um, and certainly the fall affected that, right? But it doesn't turn them into, 
you know, quasi-animals or anything. Um, we see how they lived, and we see the choices and things. And so sinful, yes, but not idiots in the IQ category at all. All right, so verse 20 says, And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. The word Eve, does anybody know the meaning of the word Eve? I think we ended last week. Before? It's a good guess. No. It's a good guess. No. It's actually in the end part of the verse. Living. It literally has this idea of living or life. And it's beautiful because God had told them in the day that they eat the fruit thereof, they would die. But when they did eat of the fruit, God gave a promise to them in front of the snake. When he talked to the snake, he said, you shall bruise his heel, but he shall bruise your head. Right? Or he, he shall bruise your head. And that promise meant that the seed of the woman, the descendant of the woman, would bruise, and we talked about this last week, would crush the head of the snake. And it's after this, it's after these three curses are given, that Adam names his wife, and he gives her the name Life. That's beautiful, because it's a statement of his faith in what God had said. She would have descendants, she would have seed, and of that seed, that seed would crush the serpent, the death that was upon them would be broken, and there would be life. And certainly, I think, you know, the obvious application is that Eve was the mother who birthed, you know, future humans, so there's life in that sense. But I see it as much deeper than that. I see it as life in victory over the death that sin has brought. And God had given them a promise, and I believe Adam is embracing this promise. Um, we'll talk about what happens next. Um, and it says for in verse 21, so perhaps the timing, we don't know which one happened first. Uh, let me quick see if there's anything else here. Oh, yes. Adam is the one who names her. She does not name herself. And we made a brief reference to this last week also, that I think this shows the leadership of, of Adam and that he was leading and he had named all the animals. It is interesting that when his wife first comes to him, that he did not give her a name. Um, and it was after the fall that he gives her this name of, of life. Um, but this does show, um, you know, I think the leadership of Adam in this scenario. Remember how we said that even today, parents name their children, right? And that's because parents have authority over their children because they're the ones who bring them into this life, right? And it's not quite the same because it was his wife and he didn't bring her into existence or anything like that. But it does show that he was there first and then she was brought to him and he names her. So we see the name of life. What a beautiful name. Um, any questions or comments on verse 20? All right. Esther will start. Anyone after Esther? Okay. It's just interesting because Satan, or the snake, said that they wouldn't die. Mm -hmm. And they did die. And then, yeah, his faith, looking at her, that he is going to bruise that snake that talked about they wouldn't die. Mm -hmm. And now your name is Eve, or life. Yes. It's, it is interesting because, I don't know, did, did the Lord say anything about death? 
when he told them not to eat of it? Yes, he did. He did. Okay. Yeah, he said, in the day that you I eat thereof, you shall that. surely die. Okay. So, yes. Was that the Lord or Satan then? The Lord said that, yes. Mm-hmm. All right, anyone else? Okay, verse 21 says, And Adam, and also for his wife, the Lord God made coats of skin, coats of skins, and clothed them. So the Lord clothes Adam and Eve. And if you remember from a week or two ago, back in verse 7, verse 7 says, The eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Again, I see that this is an example, or it's instructive, because they had tried to make their own clothing. God does not immediately approach them with this clothing, right? The clothing comes after several other things. And one of the things that comes after is that both Adam and Eve admit to sinning by saying, I ate, right? They admitted their sin before God gave them these new clothes. They also were, heard the curse, before God gave them these new clothes. And they also heard the promise that God, through the seed of the woman, would crush the serpent's head. It's after all these things that, that the clothes are given. And again, it, it looks like perhaps verse 21 came before verse 20 because it says for. So Adam called his wife's name Eve for Adam and also for his wife, the Lord God made coats of skins. So I don't know if that four is just speaking of to Adam or if it's saying because in the sense of um, based on the prior thing. So I'd have to look at that a little closer and try to figure that out. But regardless of which one came first, the fact is, is that this act of God is he's giving them what they need, right? And sin will take from you what you should have had and what you needed. And God is in the business of restoring and giving grace to overcome the awfulness of sin. And Adam and Eve had tried to sew fig leaves together. I sometimes try to imagine how they did that, you know? What did they use for string? What did they use for a needle? Like, how did, I wonder how that looked, you know? Did they use layers of leaves? You know, I don't know how they did it. But the point is, God took one look at it and said, oh my goodness, what an awful job, right? This is not working. This is not going to last. And they made their own fig leaves, and it was insufficient. God comes, and he gives them these animal skins, and it is sufficient to cover them. And I do think that either directly or indirectly, this, this was portraying the idea of sacrifice. Some people say, oh, that's, you know, they kind of poo-poo that. But I think in the text, the fact that an animal had to die to cover them up and to repair the damage for their sin... I do think at at minimum there is an implied or an indirect idea that an animal's life would have to be taken for this to be done, okay? Um, These robes of animal skins, or aprons as they're called here, um, he made them for both the man and his wife, and he clothed them, and no longer would they live in that state of innocence where they lived in nakedness and they didn't know or have a consciousness of their nakedness. Now they were aware, God was aware, and he provided skins and covering for them. The idea, the difference though between verse 7 and verse 21 is that they did it themselves in verse 7, 
In verse 21, God does it. And if you try to repair the effects of sin on your own, in your own way, is that going to work? Some people do that today, don't they? They say, I've messed up my life, so I'm going to just try harder. I'm going to do better, right? Well, that may be like turning over a new leaf, so to speak, but to have true transformed change, that requires God's intervention, right? God's work. Um, is there other parts of the Bible where God provides robes for people? All right, we read about that in the, in the main service, right? About coming in robes of white. Even before that, there is a robe that is given to, yes, the robe of righteousness. Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Isaiah 61. When God provided those robes, was it sufficient? Was it sufficient? Some of you think this is a trick question. Was it sufficient? It was sufficient. God was pleased with what he had done. It was sufficient for them to have a level of relationship with God. Now, it was a different you could say it's in a different realm or a different level, but he did restore a relationship with them. And I think that's what's so beautiful about the whole story is that, yes, there was a breach in the relationship, but there was also a level of restoration. God took action to repair the breach with man. Man took action, too. He tried to, you know, form his fig leaves. That didn't work. But God then took action, and he provided the, the animal skins. And it was sufficient. For that time, for that moment, it is sufficient. Um, and I do see the, the taking of the lives of the animals as a picture of the future work that God would date later do through Christ. Okay, so uh, the robes, the skins, the aprons. Um, here, I guess it uses coats, doesn't it? Uh, is there any question or comment on verse 21? Yes, Mrs. J. Yes. Yes. Right. Yes, and there's actually a lot of, you know, in my reading and study and thinking through, there's some people that teach the idea that, and I, I kind of don't agree with this, but they teach that the sacrifice was rejected only because of his heart. They say that his heart was, was wrong. But I tend to understand that it was rejected for two reasons. His heart was wrong and the sacrifice itself was wrong. And the problem with trying to figure that out is the Bible doesn't explicitly tell us, right? Yeah, but I do, I do believe, okay, so there has been, Eve has been named life, right? They were promised death. They've been promised a crushing of the serpent's head. That's a death symbol. Um, so there has been a life and death message to them. Here then we see the killing of the animals and the providing of skins, right? And so there again, there's a provision that comes out of death. So I personally think that there was instruction that the sacrifice they offer involved death and the shedding of blood. 
Now, we know that to be true later with the Mosaic you know, law and things because it says it. It says it so clearly. My understanding of this text is informed by the rest of the Bible, and I, I just think the God of consistency and the God who's pictured it in all these other ways started out that way, and that, that picture was there all along. So it's my opinion that, yes, they... Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's very possible. And, you know, there's, we don't know the time, but there's certainly a, a number of years that intervene when we get to the story of Cain killing Abel. So there's a, there's a lot of time for development of things. So, yeah, that's a good question. Wish I had a really specific answer, but it's my, my best guess. Tim, if you would hand that to her. Um, anyone after Deborah? Question or comment? All right, go ahead. Thinking wrong, but wasn't there some sort of sacrifice that wasn't animals in the Old Testament? Yes, it is true. There was a, a sacrifice that was um, the, the grain offering or the food offering, and that was more of a praise offering that happened, I believe, during the harvest time where they bring in the first fruits, that sort of thing. Um, and that that again does kind of as we get into that text, we'll talk about it a little bit more, but, you know, was this a sin offering or was it a praise offering, you know, and that kind of, that question can direct you in two different manners in understanding the text also, so. Brother Rosario is next. Uh, Tim, if you'd run that to him. Is there anyone after him? Question or comment? Okay. Oh, I had a, I had a scripture Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there's without, no remission. Yes, Hebrews 9.22, I think. Yeah. Yes, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And that's where, as we do look at the... Now, that is in reference to the Mosaic Law. Yeah, okay. it says right there, that was... Yes. The, I just looked it up. Yes. Part A says, under the law, almost everything is good. Right, right. So it's in the context of that. But if we understand the purpose and the concept behind the shedding of blood, it is to appease and avenge the wrath of God. And if God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, I know that he unfolds himself through human history, and there was an increasing of revelation and all that. But I do think the general principle is the same, that blood is shed for the covering, for the remission, for the forgiveness of sins. So um, I, I would think of it in that vein. That's how I look at the text, so. All right, Deborah has another follow-up, perhaps. So maybe part of it was in his heart, if in some cases it was okay to offer grain and stuff, but he was giving it in a wrong way, not in, like, maybe he was doing it like, okay, I want my salvation, but not as a thanks offering. Yes, it's possible. It's possible. And that's where, um, again, the Bible isn't, isn't declarative, so... You know, let, let's get up to it and maybe we'll see things a little more clearly as we go. Okay, so verse 22, God takes action again. And again, think of this in the sequence of what God does next. And personally, as I think about the sequence, I believe that God is responding to their response. And certainly he had a plan and he knew what they would choose. But, but I do see Adam and Eve responding to what God's doing. They wear the clothes, right? He names his wife Eve. And so there is an embracing of what God is reaching out to do for them, and they're accepting it, and they're following after it. And now God takes another step for their own goodness and safety. Verse 22, 
And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. And do you see that punctuation there? The dash line. And that punctuation is, is pretty interesting. I'd never seen it until I read in the Simplified. But it, it has this idea of a pause, or of a trailing off, or of a moment of silence. And it's almost as if God does not want to conclude that thought and live forever in his current corrupted state and how awful that would be is kind of the implication of what I'm, I'm thinking he was thinking. You know, the, the first thing I want to say is he talks about living forever. Doesn't man live forever? Everyone lives somewhere forever. I think the meaning here of live forever is live forever in this state. Live forever in this world of, that's now corrupted and cursed. And there would have been a permanency. And God is saying this tree will have another effect on mankind. And if they go and eat it, it will be permanent. This tree of life, boy... There's a lot I could say, and there's a lot I don't know about the tree of life, but I do know that Revelation talks about it. And I do know that we will partake of it. And I can't prove this, but I wonder if the first time we get to eat of this tree of life is where God, in the present moment, seals us for all eternity. Now, I know we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. I know we're saved, and we can't lose it. But I mean, when we, we've already been judged by him, we have our glorified body, and we go and we take of this tree of life, like Adam and Eve were not supposed to do, and we get to take it and eat it, and, and God affirms to us that you shall live in this state forever. Like, I don't know, I just think that's a beautiful thought. We do know we're going to eat from it. If that's not precisely how it works out, then, you know, there's a little imagination in there. But he's, at this moment, this is a bad thing if they go and eat of the tree of life. This would be damaging to them. And this text makes it very clear that this awful situation could have been worse. It could have been worse. And God intervened to limit its extent. This is an important point, especially for the critics that be like, well, if God really loves us, why do we have such a broken world? Well, it could be worse in that it could, have, it could always be broken, right? It could be unredeemed always. And God intervened, so that was not the case. And we only spend a limited amount of time in this broken, sinful world. So, um, I don't know what the original plan of God was. I know that he knew man would, would choose to disobey him, and that's what unfolded. But he plants this tree of life in the garden as well. And now that they've eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God takes action to keep man away from this tree. I wonder if it was intended that if they would obey him for a while and prove their love and show their devotion to God, that he would then have them eat of that tree and they could live forever in that, that beautiful state of innocence. But God will do this again. God makes all things new, the Bible says. There's going to be a new heaven. There's going to be a new earth. And, you know, this earth shall melt away and the former things shall be forgotten. And so God's not done yet. And uh, boy, if that's just a message to cling to, God is not done yet. And um, the unfolding of his goodness and his plan is going to be wonderful to see how this all, all happens. So God intervenes to protect 
humanity, and he takes action. So verse 23 says, Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from where he was taken. God is setting up the parameters of this cursed world. We talked about this a little bit last week. The curse and its effects were set up by God in that when man sinned, this would be the result. This would be the consequence. Here, God says, you're going to leave the garden. You're going to leave the garden. And all the goodness of that garden, it would appear that God is taking away goodness from them. But actually, he is protecting them from eating of the tree of life. Now remember, before all this, they had access to the entire garden, right? And Satan said, oh, you can't eat of this one tree? That's so awful, it's so horrible. You know, God's holding out on you. And yet what they, they didn't gain, they, they lost the whole garden then, right? And if that isn't a good picture of how sin robs people, because it says, oh, you can have this, and you get that, and then you lose this and this and this and this from it, right? It's like you can have fun, but you also lose love, joy, and peace, and harmony, and you know, a peaceful spirit and all these other things. Oh, that'll all be gone, but you'll have a little fun for a moment, right? Um, it's it's a, a robbery that's going on. So now the Lord sends him from the garden to till the ground from where he was taken. He was already a caretaker. He was already a gardener, but now he's going to till the ground. Now it will be the cursed ground that he's tilling. And um, he's going to work, work by the sweat of his brow, according to the curse. So verse 24 says, So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. The angels that are referenced here is cherubim. Cherubim, and that word is plural. And so we understand that there is more than one of them. And this cherubim, uh, these cherubim, are angels that ultimately are set up to serve God first, but Hebrews 1.14 says that angels also serve those that shall be heirs of salvation, that is, humans. And remember that angels have no intrinsic physical form. They are not humans. Angels are not humans. At times, their spirit takes on the appearance of humans, and in fact, there's even some occasions where angels take on the form of an animal, and we can read about some of the beastly figures in Revelation, and it's believed that they're angelic beings. But here it says these cherubim were guarding the east entrance. And it looks to me like the east was the only entrance of this garden, and the others, I guess, were walled off or somehow marked off. And they're guarding the east entrance um, at the east of the Garden of Eden, on the east side of the garden. And they're there, and, and you know, I can't prove this, and this kind of involves the conversation that she was talking about, but we assume that this existed until the flood, and these cherubim were here until the flood. And it's very likely, I think it's very possible, that Adam and Eve could have taken Cain and Abel and taken them to the edge of the garden and say, see that? See that sword, that flaming sword up in the sky? You see that, uh, those angels there, you see them? And they would tell them the story. We used to live in there, but now we're on the outside. Now we're in this part of the world that's cursed, and they're guarding. We can't go in there. That's not, we're not allowed to go in there. There's a tree of life inside there, but we can't go in there. And this is God's love at work, right? 
This is God saying in all caps, no, do not go here. I can't prove it, but I imagine that if someone tried to go in there, the sword would kill them or the angels would kill them, one of the two. I, again, I can't prove that, but we know that didn't happen because we're able to be redeemed. We're not stuck in our position forever. Thank God. Um, so he's guarding, and, and it's a, a evidence of his love for us. Um, I think if, if, man, if there's one big application we can take from this, isn't it this, that God says no in his love for us. And when there's limits, and when there's lines, and when there's guardrails that are in the word of God, God is helping his children. He is protecting his children. This is God's love at work. And I think Adam and Eve perhaps learned their lesson somewhat in that Eve had wanted the tree that was off limits. And now the whole garden is off limits. And Adam and Eve just said, we're staying out of there, right? We're not going to try to go in there. That's no, that's a no zone for us now, a no-go zone. And they, they tended to do it. So what else can we learn from these verses in the way of application? Uh, what do we find Adam or Eve or God doing that instructs us in the way that we ought to think or to live? I, I'm, I'm wondering, what do we find in these verses about Adam, about Eve, or about God that helps us think about them properly or that helps us know how to live? Like, how can we apply this passage to our living? Uh, Deborah has one. Anyone after Deborah? Okay, go ahead. I like how you pointed out that when God offered the covering, they accepted it, and they embraced that, where they could have just gone on and done their own thing. And sometimes when we do wrong, God offers his forgiveness, and all we have to do is embrace it and be yes. thankful for it. Yes, yes, and I think it's important, it's really important in our minds to understand that we don't attain forgiveness, we receive it from God. God offers it. And I think that, what, that really helps transform our thinking about how, certainly in salvation, that's how it works, but also in our daily life. Because remember what it says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. And what that means is that God is faithful and he is righteous to forgive them, which means he is ready to forgive, he's provided a way to forgive, he wants to forgive, and when we confess them, we're receiving the forgiveness that he's offering. Um, don't think about forgiveness as a thing. Like it is, it is a, a thing, but it, it comes from the hand of God, right? It's God's gift to us. It's his way of rescuing us and redeeming us. Um, not as though it were a commodity, but it's something straight out of the hand and heart of God is an important way to think about it. Good thought there, Deborah. Anyone else? Uh, Esther is next and then hand it up to Debbie. Yeah, you had said that... Um we're never told, you know, Satan doesn't tell us everything that we're going to lose yes. when we are tempted or give in to sin. And just thinking that it really takes faith when we're tempted to live righteously. Yeah. Because we're not going to see. Satan is, he wants us to destroy our lives. He's not going to say, this is all you're going to lose. Right. Um, but just having that, I guess, positive thought of when I am tempted if I will by faith follow God and not give into temptation we may have our eyes open to see all that we could have lost we may not but it is always going to be better for us to live yes. in faith knowing that God has the best intentions for us and has 
not left us in the dark of what's mm-hmm. good for us. Amen. So we need to believe God, and we need to actively doubt the devil. Don't, uh, you don't even just say believe God more. We need to actively doubt the devil. Um, Debbie is next. I was going to say, if God didn't tell us no in the beginning, mm. we would never know how to accept no. Mm. We just keep doing whatever we want. Yes. Right or wrong. Right. So, in the beginning, we needed that boundary. Yes. And then we use the boundary to teach our children and mm-hmm. so on. Yes. Yes. And isn't that true in parenting, too, that when we say no to our kids, it's, generally speaking, in their best interest, right? Definitely. You know, no, you can't have that fourth piece of candy for the day. No, you can't stay up all night. You know, those type of things to a kid, they're just like, oh, you know, I could have so much more fun if it wasn't for mom and dad, right? But we actually want their best, so that's a good point. as adults, we have to, like, come back and think about it. Yeah. Okay. So the wrong way is more fun. Mm. Then we have to like, well, you know, maybe I shouldn't do that. Yes. So it's a struggle, but at least we had that in the beginning. Mm. If we yes. didn't have that, we would just. Yes. And, more crazy than it is and if there was no boundary, we would pretty much be gods unto ourselves, right? But God lays out a boundary, and that makes Him God, right? So yeah, it's a good point there about boundaries. All right, anyone else? Well, let's jump in quick to chapter four. It says, and Adam knew his wife, I'm sorry, knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Uh, As we jump into this, we find that the very first family of the earth was dysfunctional. Um, That's not maybe encouraging, but it is very factual. And to some extent, every family is dysfunctional because of sin, S-I-N, but um, we do see how this flows, and, and we'll get as far in the passage as we can. The one other thing I want to point out is that there, in, in Genesis especially, there's a number of firstborns. And repeatedly, at least in what's recorded, there are firstborns who are not good examples and are replaced in that position of honor or responsibility by a different child. And this is certainly true here. Cain is the firstborn. And Eve is very thrilled. She says, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Now, some people ask, does this mean that she had had daughters before? And the obvious answer to that is, I don't know. Um, My assumption would be that that is not the case. But again, I don't know. But I think her phrase, I have gotten a man from the Lord, does not mean that she had daughters, and now she got a male. I believe what she's meaning by this is that there's a very generic way to understand this in a very specific way. The generic, broad idea is simply that God gave me a man, right? God gave me a son. The more specific meaning would be, I have received the man the Lord promised me previously, which, back in Genesis 3, 15... I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Um, in that passage, in that promise, Eve knew that she was going to have descendants, and God had promised that from her descendants, that one would crush Satan's head. 
it's very possible that Adam and Eve have imagined this sin problem thing can get cleaned up and put away rather quickly. Um, now that we're 6,000 plus years removed, we know it's not exactly quickly, at least not on our timetable. But, you know, here she is, and I, I tend to think that she is exuberant, and she is thinking that she has this fulfillment of what God had promised. Um, and there's a sense in which every mother thinks the best of their child, right? They have hopes and dreams, and there's that little innocent baby, and, you know, it's, it's a thrilling thing. What's sad is that as the story unfolds, he proves himself to be more a descendant of Satan than a descendant of God, right, in his actions. And um, so this name that she gives him, Cain, the name, there's a lot of ways people take it. Some say it means to set up, to erect, to create, to make one's own thing. Other people say it means a spear shaft or other people say it means acquired or gotten, which is what it says in the text, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Um, but any of those that we take, it's a positive, right? She's really thrilled with this child, and it's a positive name. She has high hopes for Cain. And then verse 2 says, And again she bore his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. The word Abel is a much more negative name. It means breath or vanity. It's perhaps her awareness that this isn't going to be fixed as soon as she thought. Um, again, a little bit of, of theory and all of that. It is interesting that the, the occupation of these two is recorded. And it says, Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Isn't this the most basic, fundamental, you know, we got two farmers, right? But one's the the animal farmer, and the other one is the crop farmer. And some of the most basic manners of making a living, especially in old days, was to be a farmer. That's how things worked. And so in an age where there's no economy and businesses and all those other things, they lived off the land. And the land that was cursed, they lived off of. And so the sheep would eat, the crops would grow, and this is how these two made their way. I imagine the one provided sheep to the other, and the other provided grain or fruit or whatever to the other, and uh, they probably took care of mom and dad, and they all kind of worked together. Um, but then it goes on to say, verse 3, and in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought from the fruit of the ground an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought from the firstlings of his flock and from the fat from them. And the Lord had respect for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he did not have respect. As we look at these offerings, I see that the issue with Cain, well, let me just compare something first. It says of Cain that he brought from the fruit of the ground an offering. When we read of Abel, it says that he brought from the firstlings of his flock and from the fat from them. Now, that's a kind of a strange phrase. And again, sometimes in Hebrew, it seems like there's several ways to understand sometimes. But it appears to me that Abel brought the first and he brought the best. Because it says from the fat from them. 
It's not saying like he took a sheep and he cut off a little fat and he said, here's the fat. No, I believe it's saying he took the fattest of the first and he offered it to the Lord. And as I read that, to me, it says he brought his very best to the Lord. With Cain, it just says he brought from the fruit of the ground. Now, maybe I'm reading a little too much into it, but Hebrew has the words for first fruits, right? It, it has words to say the best or, you know, the nicest or the greatest. And it doesn't say any of that. It just says he brought from the fruit of the ground. So I tend to understand that Cain did not bring his best. And Abel did bring his best. Now, I think that shows their heart and their respect for God. And then, secondly, I do believe the error of Cain was that he offered a bloodless offering. Now, my, the reason I believe that is not because of just these verses, but it's because of the prior verses about the, the skins and the later verses in the Mosaic you know, code and what I believe about the shedding of blood and so on and so forth. If this is but a thanksgiving offering, then that's kind of a moot point. If this is an offering for sin, then I would certainly declare that, that Cain is insufficient in the content of what he is offering to God. Um, again, that's my opinion. But you can see that God has respect for Abel. For Cain, he does not have respect in his offering. I did want to point out there that it's very clear that it says God did not respect Abel. God, I'm sorry, he did respect Abel. He did not respect Cain. And it wasn't just the offering itself. It extended to the individual. And can I just remind us that there is a link between the things we offer the Lord and our own very self. It shows our heart, right? And Cain and Abel revealed their hearts in what they offered the Lord. And God did not respect Cain for his offering. And Cain gets upset by this in verse 5. He's very angry and his countenance fell. Um, I can't prove this, but to me, it looks like Cain was expecting God to adjust his thinking and his plans to his situation instead of the other way around. You know, what should happen is that Cain should adjust his thoughts and his plans to line up with what God is expecting. But it's as though Cain expected God to adjust to his plans. It's as though Cain is saying, why is God so closed-minded? Why can't he just accept my way, my offering? This is what I wanted to bring. This is what I brought. So why doesn't God accept my offering? And um, he's angry and his countenance fell. I think he, he showed it in his face, in his eyes. Any questions or comments on these verses? There's a lot here, a lot we've covered. Pastor Jeremiah will be first. Several things, but one in verse two, Abel being a keeper of the sheep came in front of the ground. Mm -hmm. And you pointed out how that they were doing these different things that are necessary for life. But I hadn't really thought before about the fact that their tutor was Adam, who knew how to do both of these things. And yes. that's how they learned how to do them, because Adam taught them. <coughs> yes. Um, and I suppose that over the course of human history, it's often been like that, where the father taught the son how to do the trade or whatever. Yes. It's an important thing. But um, 
And then back up with verse um, 22, where it says that he was trying to keep them from eating of the tree of life, that they wouldn't live forever. Um, would Isn't it possible that they had already been eating of the tree of life on a regular basis? Because they were allowed to eat of every tree. So it seems unlikely that they had never eaten, eaten of every tree before they ate of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. And then, so the prohibition was just that they wouldn't continue to eat of the tree of life. Isn't that possible? Yeah, that's possible as an understanding um, because there was only one prohibited tree. Um, and I think, I guess in my mind, the way I was thinking of it is that one eating of it would cause one to live forever in their current state. It is true that man will live forever in his soul, and there will be a new body eventually. So how it works specifically, I don't know. But if it is that one eating causes this, then we know they hadn't eaten of it, right? Because then they would already be in that existence forever. Um, if it was that only if they ate of it after they sinned, that it would put them in that condition forever, then it's possible they had been eating of it, and he was just making sure they didn't eat again of it. Um, so there is two ways to understand that. And then along the same line, if their prohibition against eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil was so that they wouldn't die, but their exclusion from the garden was that so they wouldn't live forever mm -hmm. by eating of the fruit, that seems to really indicate in my mind, at least the way I've reasoned it out, it, that it was speaking specifically of spiritual death and not physical death. But then, so were they already going to die if they didn't eat of the tree of life? If they didn't, because if if the, if they're keep if he's keeping them out of the garden so they won't eat of the tree of life so they won't live forever, could they have just not eaten of the tree of life before and then not lived forever? Or, I mean... I'm, I'm trying to follow this specifically. Um, if the tree of life is the key to living forever, then right. couldn't they have died before they sinned if it was just the tree of life that was keeping them alive? Couldn't they have died before they sinned? If they didn't eat of the tree of life. Oh, oh, I see. So because the tree of life, life is sustaining them, sustained. giving them life. Yes. Yeah. And, and then... I guess it's possible. Yeah, I mean, I don't... I think what you're describing is a possibility, you know. Yeah, I, I guess I'm just thinking that specifically it seems like God was saying lest ye die spiritually more than lest ye die physically. Yes. Since they could have kept living forever according to this verse if well, they kept eating of the tree of life. That depends on how you define spiritual death, right? Because they did have a relationship with God and they never ate of the tree of life. So, but that's what was broken when they ate. Yes. They died spiritually when they ate. They did. And I think what I'm trying to point out from the text is that God restored a level of life with them through the skins, through their confession. That's how God is able to keep talking to them and keep yeah. telling them, don't eat of this tree and you have to leave the garden. And, like, if there was true spiritual death, there wouldn't be any 
communication with God, right? You'd be separated from God. So, um, I, I guess... I'm thinking more about the, like, physical death. The less he dies seemed more connected to the spiritual death than the physical death than I had thought previously. Right. If they could just eat of the tree of life and continue to live. Yeah, to live forever, as right. it says. Yeah. And I guess the reason I interpreted it the opposite way is because man does live forever somewhere, and we haven't eaten of the tree of life. Right, so that was my logic. I'm like, well, I've never eaten of the tree of life. Nobody's eaten of the tree of life, and we still live forever, spiritually. We live somewhere forever. So that's why I interpreted it as physical living. Because God was trying to keep them, in my opinion, from being stuck in that permanent physical state of corruption. So maybe I'm reasoning through that wrong, but that's how I was thinking through that. All right, anyone else? Okay, let's go to verse 6 and 7, and we'll wrap it up for today. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, shall you not be accepted? And if you do not well, sin lies at the door. And his desire shall be for you, and you shall rule over him. Okay, this is some uh, difficult stuff, but I love what I see here. Not with, I don't love what Cain does, but I love what God does. God comes to the sinner with questions, right? God does not abandon the sinner. He comes to the sinner with questions. And he asks Cain, why are you angry? Now that's a really good question. Why are you angry? Do you know that if you ever get angry, you need to hit the pause button and really think about this question. Why am I angry? You say, I'm angry because they made me angry. All right, that's not, you haven't digged deep enough yet. Why are you angry? You know, I've heard some people say that you need to ask why five times to really get back to the source of what's really the source. You know, what? the reason a lot of times we get angry is that our pride is hurt, we're being bothered, someone's wasting our time, someone's not following the rules, right? We're being disrespected. Why am I angry? And anger really is often the fruit of something deeper. And what's going on here is that Cain is very angry, and his anger is not just about the sacrifice. His anger is deeper than that. It is about God not accepting his sacrifice, right? He's not upset that he brought the wrong sacrifice. He's upset that God is upset with his sacrifice. And he's asking him, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? So, uh, excellent question to meditate on there. Verse 7, though, says, if you do well, shall you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. I understand this to be in context of the offering itself. If you do well with your offering, shall you not be accepted? And if you do not do well with your offering, sin lies at the door. It's, some of this connects back to how we see these offerings. If we see them in relation to sin, like confession, forgiveness, covering of sin, he may be saying, if you do your offering the way I said, if you come with a repentant, submissive heart and you bring the offering I said to bring, then sin will be, you will be accepted and sin will be forgiven. 
But if you don't do that, this sin will remain unconfessed, unforgiven, and it will lay right there by your door. And the idea of laying is not like, you know, hammock laying. It's to like lie in wait sort of lay. All right? Crouching. Some people talk about it crouching. It's going to be there to continue to afflict you, is the idea. And so he says, if you do well, you can be accepted. If you do not do well, sin lies at the door. I see that God's trying to give him another chance. <laughs> hey, if you just offer the offering I said, if you just do it the way you've been taught or whatever it is, you'll, you'll be accepted. I'll, I'll receive it from you. What a patient God, you know? What a loving God to rebuke the sinner, to point him to the right way, to show him the right path. Uh, the most difficult phrase, though, here is this final phrase, and his desire shall be for you, and you shall rule over him. Now, this pronoun him um, can be understood as it, and so some people interpret this him as Abel specifically, and other people say the him refers to sin, the sin that is lying at the door. And I, I don't quite understand how we can interpret it as Abel, myself. Uh, Abel's desire shall be for you, and you shall rule over Abel. Well, I, I suppose you could maybe sort of say that, um, in that, you know, he's the firstborn, and he would still have that position of the firstborn ruling over, over Abel. Um, what is curious, and maybe even lines up more with that interpretation, honestly, is if you go back to Genesis 3 and verse 16. Do you remember Genesis 3, 16? I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In sorrow you shall bring forth children. Here it is. And your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. That is the exact phrasing that's used here. His desire shall be for you, and you shall rule over him. So in that context, it was a human, right? Husband and wife. So... If it is applying to Abel, there's that. I tend to understand it as sin, um, meaning that sin desires to rule over us. And sin is personified here. And the Bible says that as we have the correct sacrifice, more specifically, as we have a right relationship with God, we get to rule over sin instead of sin ruling over us. Isn't that what we learn in the New Testament? That through Christ... The power of sin is broken, and we can have the victory over sin. And I think this is a warning, and he's telling Cain, look, sin is lying at the door if you don't get this straightened out. And it will desire you, and it will rule over you, unless you get this right, and then you can rule over him. So uh, that's how I understand that. It is, it is kind of tough to precisely understand. I still just love the simple truth that God is reaching out to the sinner here and is pointing him to a path of forgiveness, of victory over sin. Um, this is an encouraging verse for those who have already sinned, isn't it? Because Cain has already given the wrong offering. Cain has already offended God. God is already upset with him. And God is still reaching out to him and saying, you don't have to live this way. You don't have to go this way. There's another way. You can accept. You can offer a good offering and I will accept you. Um, so, final questions or comments? Last couple of verses here, Genesis 4. Deborah will be first. 
Okay, so if, if he does not do well, meaning he does not offer a good sacrifice, sin will lie at the door. And his desire, that is, sin's desire shall be for you. Oh, I see what you're saying, and you shall rule over him. Yes, the ruling over him would, would only come in doing right. Hmm, that's a good point. His desire shall be for you. Hmm, I don't know. I don't have a good answer. Part one and part, yeah. Well, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, right, right. Yes. Yes, and the fact is, is that God specifically doesn't reference Abel. And so we have a pronoun, and so with that interpretation, we're saying that God's referencing someone that he didn't actually name the name. But there's not a lot of people on the earth at this point in time, right? So, you know, and remember, in some of these conversations, not every word is recorded, so we have a summary. Um, I certainly think you have a good point. And let me just say, people go back and forth about, is it sin? Is it able? Is it sin? Is it able? Some translations say him, some say it. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, back and forth about that. Um, I mean, I guess technically you would say because the word him is here, they would see it as able, unless they're really personifying it there. Um, very good point. So, anyone else? Question or comment? I'm thankful that if we imagine sin crouching at our door, and there is a progressive element to sin, right, that is constantly fighting against us, but I'm thankful the Bible says that we can receive forgiveness and we can break the power of sin. And God comes to the sinner and says, here I am. I want to deliver you. I want to forgive you. I want to rescue you. And sin is crouching at the door, if you will. And really the choice so often is between, you know, God and his way or in our way. And we see here that God loves the sinner and reaches out to him. Um, I think that should encourage us because that has been our story time and again, hasn't it? That we've sinned and God reaches out with his questions, points us to the path forward, says, hey, you don't have to live this way. Hey, you don't have to do this. You can be forgiven. You can, now, he tells him kind of you can offer another sacrifice. We just connect with the, the one true sacrifice that covers all sin. So, all right, let's bow in prayer. Pastor Jeremiah, would you close, please?